We're in Romans chapter 12, 13. And we're going to deal with a very short passage, oftentimes misunderstood passage. It deals with how we relate as followers of Christ and as a church to the governing officials and authorities. Uh, in this very practical part, Paul begins simply by saying every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And that begins something of a debate that exists in life. And so I want to set some background up for you, just so you'll understand. When it comes to how we as followers of Christ uh, deal with the government entities which we experience, it's hard to go back to the Old Testament because that's a whole different world and it doesn't really relate to us. Let me just say, Jesus in Mark 12 gave a very simple principle. They asked him about paying taxes. And Jesus just made this phenomenal, as only he can do, he took a very complex issue paying taxes to Caesar, and all that went with it back then. And he made a very simple and powerful statement. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You give to God what belongs to God. That is the overriding governing principle for the follower of Christ in dealing with the civil authorities. There are some things that everybody recognizes belongs to the government. Whether you like it or not, they get to tax you. Uh, they protect our borders when we have them. They protect them. They, when we go to war, they make those decisions. Uh, regardless of the style of government, you know, we, you know, in America we have a republic form of government, a representative democracy. You know, we represent people who represent us. Or we elect people who represent us to make decisions. You know, we're very fortunate to live that way. We, we have a lot of say in our government, and if our government goes astray, ultimately it's our fault. Uh, a lot of places, they're, they're dictatorships. They have no say. They have no way. Regardless, there are certain things that government does. When you come to Paul, you need to understand the world in which he lived. Paul, and he writes this in the mid-50s, is a decade away or less from being killed by the Roman government. Within 10 years of when he writes this, Nero will kill Paul. So we need to keep that in mind. They live with the threat of persecution on the horizon. They already felt some pressure and persecution, primarily from the Jews. But it was becoming bigger and bigger. But they also lived in a world where Rome dominated, and Rome was the final authority, in Rome, civilly. And Rome protected people. The Jews actually had a favored status in Rome. The Jews had a great deal of freedom in the Roman government. So much freedom that if a Gentile or any unclean person walked into the temple, the Romans allowed the Jews to put them to death. That's a great deal of freedom. There were courts. Paul, oftentimes, you read the book of Acts, Paul was treated well numerous times by the Roman authorities until Nero came on the scene. There was a time that Rome, Paul appealed to Caesar. I mean, so Paul, at the time when the Jews were trying to kill him, the Romans protected Paul. So there was a great deal, at, you know, of, of protection provided by Rome, the government. There was never a time in, in the life of those people where somebody didn't control them. They had no say in their government. They hadn't had a say in their government, that part of the weird world, in centuries. In fact, they never had a say. Except for the time when David and Solomon reigned with, with clarity, the Jewish people always had other folks pressing them into what they should and shouldn't do. They didn't live in the world we live in. They did not understand the freedoms we have and take for granted. So we've got to keep that in mind. 
We have to be careful that we don't press too hard to apply things in in too specific of a detail, but take a step back and realize what both Jesus says and Paul says are principles. Jesus says you give to Caesar what is Caesar, and God what is God. Paul says every person is to be a subjection to the governing authorities. So we need to understand we're always going to be subject to government in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Anarchy is not what God wants. We want there to be some type of authority guarding all of our lives from a civil sense. We need government. If there's no government, all you got is anarchy. Nobody wants anarchy. So, he says that. It's a command to be that way. He says this, For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So ultimately, all authority is with God. But in God, after the Garden of Eden, in helping accommodate the sinfulness of man, remember, the only reason we need government is because we're sinful. Without sin, there would not be any need for any authority but God. But to help us exist and function in a sinful, corrupt world... God lets his ultimate authority be sent down to human authority, and he gives humans certain amounts of authority, power, opportunity to bring about civil discourse and obedience, knowing that we are a corrupt people. And so those that are in positions or authority are in principle established by God. Now, that doesn't mean when you get some horrible, crazy, nutjob dictator like Saddam Hussein, or the classic example is always Adolf Hitler because of the unbelievable atrocities. That doesn't mean we ought to think, well, that's just you know, what God wanted. You know, I, I, my, my major in college was history, so I have a history political science. And so and the focus of my history degree was American history, but you know, did a lot of study outside of that. Hitler came to power because the German people made lousy choices. I mean, basically, you just study history. I mean, their their somewhat sinful choices put an evil man in power and then basically allowed him to stay in power. I mean, to some degree, you know, I appreciate that God gives us, you know, sometimes what we ask for. Well, that, that was the case. Remember last week, Sunday, talked about Manasseh, took off into captivity because of his evilness? It happens all the time. But here's the thing. In principle... Whether we may say, putting aside the evilness of someone, whether the governing authorities are good or bad in, in our country, oftentimes it depends on whether you're Republican or Democrat, who's in office, whether you think they're good or bad. It's just be honest. That's just the way people think, right? Nonetheless, they have authority. And in the standpoint that it's not corrupted to the point that they're doing evil upon us, then there's that general sense of understanding that. Therefore, if you resist authority, you have opposed to of God. Now, it's not saying that if you disagree or that if they render under God, Caesar the things that are God's, we're not talking about that. I mean, we're talking about just within the normal realm of what they do. If you resist authority, you oppose the ordinance of God. So if you say, I don't like the tax rate, I'm not paying taxes, well, you, would, you would be violating this. I'd be sympathizing with you, but you'd be violating this. I learned a very valuable lesson from a Christian accountant. Tax avoidance and tax evasion are two different things. 
Evading taxes is illegal. Avoiding them is just really smart, he said. <laughs> and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, listen, if you don't like certain laws, I'm not a big fan of, it's not big of speed limit laws. I'm not a big fan of those things. And to the person I buzzed by, if it's you earlier today, please understand I was going to the hospital. I had a biblical reason to buzz you because you were going too slow. Crying out loud. Pick up the pace, people. Man. It doesn't mean you can just disobey them because you don't like them. I mean, listen, you may live in in an area that has certain, you know, our, our city has a lot of restrictions in building. When we built this building, it was a pain in the neck. You know what we did? We followed all the codes. It's the law. We didn't want to be the church that doesn't follow codes. We, we did what we were told to do. Paid a ridiculous amount of taxes on this building. Had some crazy things. You know what we did? We did them. Because that's the law. And I couldn't figure out a way around it. <laughs> Notice what it says. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Generally speaking... Regardless of whether you like who's in office, if you obey the law, you've got nothing to fear, generally speaking. In our country, that's true. Obey the law, i got nothing to worry about. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. You know, suppress them the same, so obey the law. Pay your taxes, vote, do all the things, protest, all the things we're allowed to do, you know, all that stuff, that's cool, that's great. Obey the law. Well, notice verse 4 says this. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. In other words, not just speculate. If you're evil, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. So people who are evil in nature, it doesn't matter who fundamentally is in office. If there are people who are evil, we expect our authorities to go after them and bring them to justice. Now, if they don't, then there's a problem. Right? So I don't like to take a bunch of examples from everyday life. I don't, I don't think that's fair from people. But when someone does something that is truly we understand evil, regardless of, of who's in office, whether you agree with them, we expect and they will bring them to justice. Our police, our sheriff, our federal authorities, they're going to bring people to justice. We have a, we have a certain degree of confidence in that. And we should. And that's what we're told to do. Verse 5 says, It is necessary, therefore, to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for the sake of conscience. As a Christian, we ought to set an example. For because of this, you pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. By the way, they hated taxes back then as much as we do today, so that's nothing new. So, render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So, here's the basic thing, and I'll talk about this for a few minutes. Without trying to go into every case situation, as a follower of Christ, I have a Christian obligation to support my country and to obey the laws of wherever I live. You know, city, county, state, nation. That's what I'm to do. You know, as a follower of Christ, 
I live within a framework. We live within a framework as Americans that we have all sorts of, of proper ways to deal with things we don't like. And we can do those. We have elections. You can run for office. You can, you know, civil disobedience to some degree. You can protest. You can voice your opinion. You can do, you know, all these things that are legal. Most Christians, we, we can, that's what works for us. At the same time, our country was founded upon the idea of revolting. It's an odd thing that a nation that prides itself on being Christian is established because a bunch of people who call themselves Christians and followed the principles of Christ rebelled against the authorities that were put in office. It's a kind of a conundrum for us to work through. And I often spend time thinking through that process. I've read a lot. I'm reading a book now about one of the founding fathers and the struggles that they went through. Uh, the disagreements that existed, the conflicts emotionally that some of them had about what they should do. Early on, uh, the founding fathers made a distinction that they were not upset with the king, but with parliament. So, you know, right before the Revolutionary War, they kept trying to tell King George, we're appealing to you because the parliament is, is putting this heavy tax burden. Would you do something about it? They're, they're treating us unfairly. Would you do something about it? And uh, so they appealed to the, to the conscience of the king, who did nothing. And ultimately, we ended up going to war uh, to have a free nation. Uh, and it's an interesting thing. And, and I would look at that and say they were totally justified as a follower of Christ in what they did. Because they were a group of people living thousands of miles from a government who cared not for their benefit, but exploited them. Do you understand what England was doing to America? It's the same thing it did to India, to Australia, to the Caribbean. It's what all of the colonializing countries did to other colonies. They exploited their natural resources for their own gain and did nothing for the benefit of the colonies. And so, in essence, one could argue justification for that. I say that simply to point out that it... We, we need to take the principles to heart. So here's the deal. There are certain things that I think the government does that's lousy. But as long as they don't infringe upon those things that belong to God, I'll, I'll go with it. As much as I can. Now, when they kill the unborn, they're going to oppose that every step of the way. That's, I'll preach about that. I have no qualms. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green, Blue, Red, whatever. You kill the unborn... I'm against you 100%. And, uh, you know, and I don't have any problem saying that. Uh, If you you impinge upon the freedom of religion, I'm probably going to oppose you. Uh, But, you know, all throughout the world, Christians are persecuted. And a lot of places, they can't do anything about it. You know, what's a Christian who's being persecuted, uh, say, in North Korea, going to do? They go into hiding and they break the law. And that's what they do. I remember uh, a few years back, in, um, the mayor of Houston was upset with some ultra-liberal, ultra-liberal mayor was upset because some ministers were not doing the same-sex marriages. And so she decided to go after them in court. And she asked for all of their sermons, all of their stuff. And they just looked at her and said, you ain't going to get it. And they just disobeyed the edict that a court actually handed down to them. They went to a higher court and won and all that jazz. But, you know, there are certain times that you just say, not going to do it. 
So if there are certain things that, for instance, the government ordered me to quit preaching or say I could only preach on certain subjects or I had to take a personal view, I, I would have a comment to them that probably wouldn't endear me to them in my South Texas way of saying things. But obviously I would disobey them because they are exceeding the authority of Caesar. Now, I, I have to always understand from a biblical standpoint what authority Caesar has and what authority it doesn't have. And it's always a fine line to walk. And sometimes people want me to do X and want me to do Y, and it really doesn't matter what you want me to do. I, I try to do what this says, and you've got to do the same thing. So it's a tricky thing, to be honest. But if we remember two things, Jesus said you give to Caesar what is Caesar. God, to give to God what is God's. And Paul said respect the authority. We'll be okay. Remember, about 30, 35 years after this, John's going to write a book called Revelation. That describes, as I understand Revelation, the persecution that is going on at the time. And he calls the Roman government horrible names. Or Jesus uh, speaks through that. Showing his already condemnation and damnation of the Roman government. There's a sense in which we need to understand that Jesus will always defeat evil. He defeated Ahab, Jezebel, Manasseh. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Lord, as I said before, is undefeated. And whatever problems we end up having, there'll come a day he'll straighten all that out. Which leads us then, after he says this, to verse 8, So owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor is to feel the loss. The basic thing to do is love. Love the people in office. Love the people you don't like. Now that's hard, i got to be honest with you. There are certain, certain people, I just don't, they're not lovable. And so, you know, the Lord, Paul says, you've got to love them. So I try to figure out how to do that. And I just hoped I did the best I could. Because ultimately that fulfills God's law. Remember, the law of God is the revelation of God, how we ought to live. Jesus summed up the law, says, love God, love people. So we've got to love People that sometimes come across as unlovable. And sometimes you come across as unlovable because they're just mean or evil. or just It just seems like they have an antagonism towards the things of God. And I look at some of the things people say and the way they behave. And I got to tell you. I don't know them, so I don't, I don't know that I have to love them as much if I don't know them. So I kind of feel better about, about that. I'm never going to meet them, so yeah, I love you, whatever. It's hard to do. The simplest command of Jesus is the hardest command to follow. You love God in such a way as you commit everything of your life to God. And you love all those other rotten people that God loves. And it's hard. It's what distinguishes the follower of Jesus from the unbeliever. It really is. It's sometimes, I think, easier to to have people you know, you work with, go to school, who are mean, to find ways to love them because you interact with them, you see some things. 
than it is people you don't even know. But as we come out of this section on the governing authorities, knowing that there were rulers in place who were, fun, who were pagan and fundamentally evil, Paul said, you've got to love them. That's why Jesus on the cross, to the people that were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them. They just don't understand what they're doing. And they just don't. So, he said, and he names all the laws in verse 9, some of them. He said, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It kind of sounds like 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, when, when you take the laws of man, that can be hard to follow. And you take the fact that loving people fulfills the law of God... If you love people, then it's kind of like a template of, of following God's law that will go over man's law. And so while you may struggle with man's law, ultimately you will be following God's law. I'm going to go back. I, I missed one thing in verse 4. I talk, it says that uh, the civil authorities are an avenger who brings the wrath, the one who practices evil. The idea of that is that the authorities are acting on behalf of God to execute judgment on the evil, much as the Babylonians did and even the Assyrians did on behalf of God. So I wanted to, I missed that part in verse 4, I just saw that. So going back to what I'm saying here then, while it may be difficult sometimes to understand how do we keep all of man's law, if we will keep the law of God and the primary law to love, It'll make it easier for us or simplify the process for us to keep the laws of man. At the very least, we will understand that it's sinful people who are creating problems and there will be some sense of compassion and mercy upon them. Now, this is hard. And I know that. It was hard in Paul's day. It... it, it goes against a lot of the things that we feel and experience simply because of where we live in America, where we live with so much freedom and such a lack of restraining laws that it makes it hard for us then to do that. If you lived in the time of Paul, I don't want to say it was easier, but it was a fact of life that you had few options. And so there's a, there's a little bit of a tension that I live in a different era than Paul. So I really have to take these fundamental principles and make sure that I, uh, that I don't make one or two mistakes, that I don't press them too hard, or that I ignore them too quickly. So he says in verse 11, this is what helps, remember, Paul's dealing with all these things. Do this then, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Now, the idea of, now Paul is looking to the, to the end times, to the coming of Christ. And people get all bent out of shape about, you know, Paul thought, you know, Jesus was coming right then, and, and he, you know, and he obviously did and all that stuff. Paul didn't know when Christ was coming. They lived, and, and you've got to understand how they viewed the world and how they viewed God. Christ came, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And he said, I'm coming back. He didn't tell them when. 
It kind of makes sense they might think soon. But they live with the expectation that they were living in the last days. Which, by the way, is correct. From the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, we live in the last days. People come to me all the time, preacher, David, do you think we're living in the last days? Yes, but not the way you mean it. I think we're living in the last days because we've been living in them for 2,000 years. I don't necessarily think that we're living in the last days because I picked up the newspaper, read a few things, and said that God must be sitting in Jesus soon because I'm reading the paper and all these things on my chart are about to come true. I don't mean to be meaning that, but I'm just telling you that's how some people look at it. From a solid, theological, doctrinal, biblical position, there's no other understanding but that they all believe they were living in the last days from the first to the second advent of Christ. It is fundamental to our eschatological view of Christ. So, he says it's growing near. He's giving them hope. He said the night is almost gone. He's likening it just to a period of sleep. The day is near. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on light. In other words, you know how a lot of crime happens when it's dark? It just does that. He says the darkness is coming. Don't, don't put yourself in the time of darkness. But live in the light. Dawn, dawn is about to break. Have you ever seen the musical Cats? Have I ever seen that? So this is like four really sophisticated, cool people. <laughs> Cats, by the way, is making, I'm seeing if Debbie wants to go. We've seen it like three times. The musical's making a reappearance, and it's going to be in different places. So in the end of Cats, and I can't explain, the, the, I can't explain it to you, you just have to experience it, but in the end of Cat, Cats, the, 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 the cat that is about to die but to be reborn in this whole thing, feels like they're about to die because the night is almost coming and the dawn is, dawn is coming on the horizon and they're, they're going to die that night. And in the song, basically, that she sings is, look, the new day has begun. But in that story, the new day beginning brought that cat to a new life. Now, I don't know how to explain it better than that. I, I could sing it for you and you might get a better feel for it. I know almost every song because I had that playing on a thing forever for my life. I could sing all about those dumb cats. I don't even like cats. I'm a dog guy, man. Come on up. But the idea was the dawn is coming and new life and rebirth is coming. And that's what Paul's saying before cats. We need to live with the view to the dawn. That new life is coming. So whatever the government does, whatever is happening... The coming of Christ is just around the corner. Let us behave, he says, notice this, properly, as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness and promiscuity and sensuality and strife and jealousy. Now, don't live like the pagans live. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. In other words, he says, live like a follower of Jesus should live. Not like the pagans, who, by the way, are in power and have authority, and God has allowed it. 
It is the call to a higher life and a higher expectation of how we ought to live. And so what you have here in this chapter is Paul recognizing the struggle with civil authority. And that we ought to, even in difficult circumstances, be subject to the authority of Rome, Caesar. As long as it doesn't break, obviously, from what the Lord would have us do. Love people, even those who persecute you and pressure you and come after you. And you do that because the coming of Christ, that day is breaking. The dawn is breaking. Don't live like the people of the night. If you oppose the government unfoolishly, if you refuse to love, even the unlovable, you are living in the darkness. But have hope for the coming dawn and the coming of Christ and live like a follower of Jesus. Now, that's pretty good advice on how we ought to live today. And it's a pretty good principle. Now, I can't give you every scenario and I always get this. Well, what about this and that? I said, I can't tell you how you ought to live every scenario of your life. You know, we're talking about what we believe next week. As a Southern Baptist, I believe in the priesthood of the believer. I believe I don't tell you how to live, and you don't tell me how to live. Scripture does. But beyond that, I ain't telling you what you ought to do, and you're not going to tell me, at least I'm not going to listen to you. I also believe in the autonomy of the local church, which means nobody tells our church how we function but us. But within all that, we have to understand that Scripture does tell us how we ought to obey. And our responsibility, my responsibility is to present scripture to you accurately and truthfully. So you can understand and I can understand how we ought to live up to that. Okay, any questions you may have, I'll do my best to answer them. Joe, I'm allowing for questions, that's why I'm ending soon. Yes, sir. If my people, we can apply that. If my people will humble. Who's he talking to? Is it only about Israel? What the, at the context, it's talking about Israel, isn't it? Can we take that today? To who? Who do you want to apply it to? To the United States. That's the United States, States his people. Oh. I'll take it to the church. I'll take it to you and to me. I'm not taking it to the lost people because the lost people of the world aren't obligated. To anything but to follow Christ. So why would I apply that to people who are not followers of Jesus? Why would I expect people who are not followers of Jesus to follow scripture they don't believe in? Now he wrote it for the people of Israel. And it applied to them specifically, principally. It does apply to me. So if you want to talk about a church or followers of Christ throughout the world, you have to remember my people and nations we use the word nation differently than Scripture does. We use the word nation for a geopolitical understanding. Nations, biblically, were primarily ethnic organic groups. And so there was a fundamental difference. And because of the nature of our country, we don't fit the category of nation in Scripture. It just doesn't stand that up. It doesn't, doesn't match up. So... 
you, I, I simply can't buy that America correlates to the nation of Israel because oh, most of Americans aren't followers of Christ. So that'd be like saying that Israel and Edom and Moab and Amnon all had to follow that passage. Now, there were some things God said. Amos is a great example. To those other nations, there are times God spoke in the prophets to other nations. You see him speaking to Assyria. Jonah went and spoke to Assyria. That was to Nineveh. So there are times God does that. And that doesn't mean there aren't places where people in America need to hear the word of God. But from, from the standpoint of that passage in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, applying to America, I would just say that's, that it's preached that way. I've heard it preached that way dozens of times. And I just don't agree with it at all because it's not biblically, it's not consistent with the teaching of Scripture, both from the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation. The language isn't consistent. The correlations aren't consistent. The connections aren't consistent. And so I, I would reject that applying to us. You talk about the world powers, what? In the world powers, yes. has there ever been any leader other than a pagan leader? Oh. Well, I mean, within, I mean, I would say some of the popes, despite what many Baptists will stone me for this, some of the popes were followers of Christ, I think. Um, certain, certain presidents were followers of Christ. So, I mean, I think we've had plenty of presidents who were legit. I mean, Washington comes to mind right off the bat, uh, legitimately a follower of Jesus. And I don't want to name which ones I think were and weren't, especially in recent times. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there are people who are. Sure. I mean, world powers, even go back to, to Old Testament, David, you know, Solomon, Hezekiah, those guys were. They were world leaders. I'm not fond of saying too many today. There's probably a few somewhere. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, through history people have implied the end is near. The end is yes. near. We've been saying that for 2,000 years. But yes. My question is, the United States of America, on a geopolitical basis, seems to think because there's strife now that the end is more near than it was when yes. the Babylonians were here or when the, the Crusades went on, yeah. to put it in a historical uh, context so that people don't think this is the worst time that ever existed yeah. in 2,000 years. We were asking about the United States and because there's pressure and things happening that the end is near. The only people who have consistently avoided persecution as Christians in the history of Christianity or Western civilization, specifically in America, the last 200 years. There's persecuted, the, the, large, the single largest persecuted group of people in the world from one type of an demographic are Christians. World, the uh, United Nations has said that, you know. All over the world, Christians are persecuted. So, as America, we have historically avoided that. I mean, where was that? I mean, even if, when you look at the colonial times, uh, some of our Baptist, you know, a couple of Baptist guys in Virginia at the turn, you know, at the American Revolutionary Times were, quote, persecuted because they didn't want, all that happened was that 
there were state-sponsored churches, like the church, uh, the Anglican church, the Episcopal church was a state-sponsored church, and you had to pay taxes or money, and they didn't want to pay money to them. It wasn't that they couldn't worship. In America, basically, followers of Christ have been able to worship freely, uh, historically. And uh, even crazy groups have been able to do that. So we have not really experienced those types of things. And, and I think because of that, people have this idea that, uh, and it came out of England a lot and other places, that when we do experience these things, it must be the end of time. Ignoring the fact that all over the world right now, Christians are persecuted on a daily basis. Right? As we speak, Christians are being put to death. So that's why, you know, I think people think that. I understand that I get all that. I know all the reasons I understand all that. Um, but we've always believed that the time is near. Jesus said that. Time is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When he said the time is near, he meant the time of judgment is near. As in, the end is near. So. Yeah, I mean, time is irrelevant to God. So he exists outside of time. So that's part of the issue. What else? These are all good questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, this thing about that we, we're commanded to love one another, love, love God, love one another. But my question would be, let's take the worst people in the world, like you said, Hitler, whatever, whatever. We're supposed to love them, but how do you really love them? Of course, they're not here anymore, but let's just say people who are around us that are just so... Antithesis to what we do. Yeah. So anti, you know, hateful, whatever. Okay. We're supposed to love them, so we can still despise them, but we can still love them at the same time. We don't I wouldn't them. say despise them. Uh, the word love is the word agape. And you have to understand that that word has with the connotation of a sacrificial love that cares for the best thing of that person. So if I have a friend, and I have, I have friends who are atheists. And uh, some of them are pretty antagonistic towards God. I have friends uh, that, are, that, are, that I consider friends, consider me friends, we, you know, that are pretty antagonistic toward things that I believe in and live pretty immoral lifestyles um, and are pretty much anti-God. I love them in the sense I care about them. I care about their soul. I care about the fact that they're going to hell. And I have compassion upon them. Uh, I have a kid from my church in a uh, Park Hills in San Antonio was obviously associate pastor who um, committed an unbelievably horrific crime 10 years ago uh, and spent the rest of his life in jail, and he should, if not be put to, if he should have probably been executed. And I love him. I know him. I feel for his parents. I love the guy. I know what he once was. When I know the people, it's easier to love even evil people when I know them. When I know people that are e- evil or sinful, even if they're cruel to me, it's easier to love them. Hitler, I mean, I mean, let's just say whoever, you can pick somebody, that cat down in Venezuela. I don't know him. So loving him is hard, but that's not, that's not what Scripture's talking about. So loving, you know, all the evil people over wherever, I mean, it's not really talking about that because I don't know them. It's talking about the people I interact with. And as a Christian, loving them actually is easier than loving those other people because I see and deal with them in such ways that move me to compassion. It is the mark of being a Christian. Part of the reason I know that I'm a Christian is I love those people. Portion of 
I love them because they're human. Humanity, yeah, because because they're because they have their image bearers of God, and I love them. And because I know them, sometimes I know things about their past that led them to that point. But but even if people who I know who are hostile to me, it's easier for me to love them because I have some type of relationship with them, and I can see things as a Christian. Uh, that makes that possible. And it is the defining mark, really, of being a follower of Christ that I can love them. It's how I know I'm a follower of Jesus, because I can't love them. It's one of the ways I know I'm a follower of Jesus. What else? Good questions? Anything else? Yes, sir. Well, back to Second Chronicles. Yeah. If, if my people... Could that apply to the Christians of the United States? It would apply to Christians, period. If my people... Yes. Christians, period. Yes. yes, certainly within the United States, yeah. It applies to all of us here. And the Christians of the United States pray, seek his face, turn from their yes. wicked ways. And God will bless the Christians. Look to healing of our land. The primary way, you're taking Old Testament and you're taking that prayer that was for the Israelites and you're placing it on our country. If we want to see our country heal, there's one way that happens. And only one way that happens. And it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if I want to see my nation healed, I need to get off my rear end and go share Christ with as many people I know. Praying the prayer of the Old Testament people of God who didn't go preach the gospel but had to have renewal is a valid thing. I mean, it's absolutely valid. I don't say that. But I need to take what Jesus said as the template of how I bring about that healing. So if I want to see America healed, the best way for me to do that is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people because he's the only one that changes the hearts of people. So I'll still pray, just like Second Chronicles said, go pray. I'll still pray. But I'm not relying on a prayer from Second Chronicles or anywhere in the Old Testament, any of that. I'm not relying on the Ten Commandments. I'm not relying on any of that. What I'm relying on is the Holy Spirit to work through me and other followers of Jesus to see lost people come to Christ. But see, my primary concern isn't for America. <laughs> Stop it. I'm giving you next week off. My primary concern isn't for America. My primary concern is for the lost. You understand? I love being American. But if I was born a few hours south, I'd love being that too. And I've been both an American and a Texan, so I know what it is to have two different countries. So while I am concerned for my nation, obviously, and I, and I weep for the sin, I am primarily concerned for the loss of my country and my world that they need to come to a saving relationship with Jesus because my primary obligation is to God. Amen. And after that, I work my country in there and you know my love for New Mexico and Las Cruces and all that. All that's true. Let me give you a good example from my perspective. One of the things that's important to me as a pastor at First Baptist Church is that we have a strong presence in and around Las Cruces and Doniana. So one of the things I want to see us do is partner with other groups to help them come to Christ. Help, to help them with their work and coming people to Christ. So we're partnering with Bethesda 
Baptist Church, U.S. Batista. They're doing a great work. That's because I want to help Hispanic people and Spanish-speaking people, who I will never reach, come to Jesus. So my primary way of doing that is working with people who are doing that. I have a passion for them to come to Christ. We're working uh, in Juarez in a lot of, in a lot of ways, because all of us have this passion. Oh, this is me. Because we live next door to a nation that's in desperate need of Jesus, and God's put us there. So I have a passion for the people of Mexico. I've always said, I've lived along the border three times in my ministry. So what I'm saying is, my passion spills out to lost people. As an American, my passion spills out to lost people in America. But I still, but I get you, I still want my, America, my country to be strong. I want my country to pass conservative laws and be friendly to Christianity. I want my country to do all those things. But in the end, whether they do it or not, it doesn't affect whether I share the gospel. So I, I agree you know, with that in principle, but it's really not the reality of the world we live in. What else? Can I, yes, sir. Can I follow up? No problem. It seems like we can't, uh, I would say, within our congregation, about what is evil. Yeah. In that we separate in our political views. I mean, we're Christians, but we have different political views. Uh-huh. We have some authorities uh-huh. who say the wall is immoral. Uh-huh. And then we say some, no. It depends on it's, it makes it relevant. It depends on how you look at it. Yeah. And like Christians, you see those images yeah. of children, women and children, horrible scenes. Yeah. And you would think, well, Jesus would turn them away, would he? But then, if you look in a broader perspective about uh, the drugs that are. Mm-hmm. The, the great drug yeah. in, in influx into uh, coming into America, yeah. the evil that that causes. So, uh, well, you're left. You know what yeah. is, uh, what is yeah. right and wrong. Let me just say this: speaking about abortion, it's clear cut, no problem. Speaking about other things can be pretty clear cut, and I do that. <laughs> There are some things of a political nature that I really don't deal, I personally deal with and I don't want to deal with because most people don't take a holistic view anyway of it. They take fundamentally a political view. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a political animal, so I understand that. Things like walls and immigration and all that, we have laws as a nation, we need to follow those laws. And this is where this kicks in. Elect people who will put in place laws that you agree with. And if they don't put in place laws that you agree with, then work to change that, but obey the law. Uh, I'm, I will never speak out on politics. I will not, unless, unless Satan is running, I'm never going to speak out. Because it's not my place. Y'all are grown up. Y'all big boys and girls, you can figure that out without me. So I don't know that it's the place of a church to deal with that. Uh, churches that deal with that inevitably die. They just do. My place is to reach lost people on both sides of a wall or without a wall and let those things take care of themselves. So I know it's a tough thing, but I I don't think the church is designed to be a political entity. So, yeah. You know D.B. Bonhoeffer, you studied him? Yeah, you mean the guy who was ultra-liberal? You mentioned him. 
mentioned Hitler, and yeah. he was trying to yeah. uh, oppose Hitler, yeah. and he was a, a pastor. Yeah. Well, if Hitler, if Hitler's in power, I'll oppose. Him. And one of his things that is quoted that silence in the face yeah. of evil yeah. is evil itself. That's correct. I agree. He's a pretty liberal, liberal pastor, by the way. But yes, I agree with him. But that has, I don't have anything to do with this. So, yeah. Yeah. Be silent in your church. It's all all right. Yeah, I don't, I don't, let me just say this. I don't understand what you're saying because we're not silent about evil. I speak out against evil all the time. I may not, I may be silent on your political views, but your political view may not be better than someone else's. So, when something is evil, if I need to speak on it, I speak on it. I have no problems. I've never backed away from that. I don't take political positions, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to endorse this person or that person. It's not my place to do that. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. I don't have to tell you who to vote for. If you can't figure out who to vote for, my telling you when you're going to help, you've got problems on your own, man. My, my purpose is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to preach the word of God. And I do that. And when something is evil... I say abortion is evil. I have no qualms calling that. I'll call, if something's evil, I'll tell you it's evil all day long. But just because something political doesn't mean we have to take a political stance. I don't have to endorse one president or one governor or one congressman over the other. That's not my place to do that, and I don't do that. It's just not, it's just not what God... It's not the role of the church. The role of the church is to share the gospel of Jesus. That's what we do. But that's all legitimate stuff. It's good stuff. Anything else? I know Brian wants practice, right, Brian? Joe wants me to go long. You don't want me to go long. You guys got to work that out. And I'll just do whatever I want and not worry about what you guys want. And we'll see you all later.